Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. This is the final episode of season 11 of the podcast. We've been exploring resilience, failure and forgiveness, leadership, belonging, and a variety of other topics that when done properly will help us perform our best. Today's guest is Dr. Gabriella Rosen-Kellerman, who is co-author of the book, Tomorrow Mind. Gabriella spends her days working at BetterUp, where she is the company's chief innovation officer. In our conversation, we discuss the necessary ingredients to thrive at work now and in the future. We talk about the importance of resilience, creativity and innovation, forming strong social connections, doing work that matters, and being able to identify future scenarios well before they arrive. Most importantly, Gabriella unlocks the secrets for building our skills in each of these areas. When I started this podcast five years ago, I wanted to explore the trends shaping the way we live and work so leaders could prepare their people for a rapidly changing world. This conversation with Dr. Rosen Kellerman provides the perfect tool set for people who want to harness the disruptive changes that are certain to come. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarkconspiracy.com. Dr. Rosen Kellerman, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thanks so much. Great to be here. I'm excited to have this conversation. Let's just start out with your background. Can you tell us who you are, what your background is, where you're working, et cetera? Yeah. So my background's in medicine. I'm an MD by training. I went into medicine to become a psychiatrist. And partway through my psychiatry residency, left for digital health tech, moved there and got to be part of the beginnings of the behavioral health tech sector, where we are building these highly scalable tools to help build well-being for large populations. Today, I'm the chief innovation officer at BetterUp, which is a large coaching platform helping people work on personal and professional development. And um, proud to put out my first book, summarizing some of the scientific research we've done over the last seven years called Tomorrow Mind, and it was out in January. How would you define a tomorrow mind? So a tomorrow mind is a mind that is prepared for a world of work defined by constant tomorrows. If we think about Ray Kurzweil's law of accelerating returns, which says that going to go through something like 20,000 years of progress in the next 100 years. What we're saying is essentially it comes down to a tomorrow every seven minutes. And that's what it feels like, right? Our, our world is constantly disrupted and changing. We need to rethink what's around us. And it's less about any specific tomorrow than about the project of being ready for all of them. And those are the skills that we're talking about. And when I say a specific tomorrow, I mean things like ChatGPT, the revolution in, in AI that hit a few months ago or, or peaked a few months ago. I think about things like the pandemic, right? Moments that in and of themselves feel so revolutionary and so difficult. And yet it really is tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. It keeps coming and it will keep coming. And we have to be open-eyed about what that's going to take to live meaningful, fulfilling lives and to have successful careers defined by that. Let's talk about thriving in the future. What are the components required for people to thrive at work in the future? So from our data, we've defined five skills for thriving in this, the so-called future of work, which is really here already, and define my constant uncertainty and rapid pace of change. So 
They're summarized by the acronym PRISM. P is prospection, our ability to imagine and plan for the future. R is resilience. I is innovation. S is social connection. And M is mattering. You make the case that our brains are mis or were mismatched with the work required to thrive during the agricultural revolution. Why is that? And are our brains better aligned with 21st century work? The only world of work our brains are adapted for is hunting and gathering. So that was the, the vast majority of the evolution of the modern human brain happened in that context. The first major labor revolution was the agricultural revolution. Going from hunting, gathering to farming was incredibly dramatic. And there's all kinds of evidence of its negative impact on individual health, individual well-being, you know, disease rates were prevalent or were, were much higher because we didn't know how to deal with human waste in these, you know, in, in living in closer quarters to one another. Nutrition was poor, we, so we didn't live as long. The work, the, the nature of work, it went from being this very exploratory endeavor. We had to adapt to seasons and new environments and new terrains and use creativity to build these tools to give you a competitive advantage, suddenly it's very, very repetitive. Not quite as repetitive as it would become in the industrial evolution with factories, but you know, there's there's skeletal evidence in China, for example, of young women with arth- arthritis all over their body because they've been kneeling at a grindstone for you know, the, the short years of their life. So it was not, it, and it's it's puzzling still, why we that happened exactly, but it's the first example of of this way that we were not designed either our bodies or our brains for our work and designed in quotes, you know, not to imply a, a teleology here, but just that that's that's what happened. Industrial revolution was its own sort of mismatch. If you look at today, on the one hand, compared to the highly specialized nature of work that trended through agriculture and then industrialization compared to the increasing monotony of work. There's a beautiful return to creativity. There's a beautiful return to a need for a generalist skill set because we have to move between roles and we have to move between industries. We have to change jobs much more frequently because the work that we're doing is so integrated across domains. So that I think is really beautiful and it's something we should embrace and we need to get back to the idea of thinking of everyone as creative because that is our our heritage and we all have that hardware. On the other hand, the change, the pace of change that we're facing is very, very challenging and it's not native to us to deal with. So the levels of resilience that we need, levels of motivation to push through chapter after chapter to, to master a new, a very new and very different environment with a brain that was quote unquote designed to receive change as potential threat, that's not really a great fit for an environment of constant change. So in some ways, I think there's there's a lot of beautiful redemption here. On the other hand, there's there's definitely new challenges that we're still just understanding for the ways that we are wired for one environment. And now we're, we're trying to apply that same hardware and software to a brand new situation. Given your background in in psychiatry, I think that might kind of tip us off to this next question, but what are the risks of failing to adapt to our rapidly changing world? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the, the risks are borne out in our individual experience where we, we struggle more than we used to with things like burnout, with the, the desire to leave jobs more quickly than we have in the past. But they're also borne out the population level. So there's some great studies done by Jeff Pfeffer and, and others showing excess deaths due to job stress, for example, and on the order of seven figures um, a year due to, you know, things that are happening at work that that are impacting us negatively. I think we are seeing in, in the workplace certain mental health disorders rising in prevalence. So, you know, the, those are the warning signals. That's what we want to avoid. And again, there's there's certain parts of it that we're we're hardwired on and we have limits and, and there's a lot that we can do in terms of learning coping skills, in terms of reframing this as it's not just about avoiding a negative outcome. It's actually gaining these skills so we can achieve things that we couldn't have achieved in any other work environment. I mean, think that this idea of potential is it's such an important word in our time, both because of the hope it gives us for what we can do with this turning challenge and opportunity. And because it's very real, because this is, we're, we're in this like wild west of what does this mean for us as a species? And there's inherent potential there for, for the good, as you said earlier. If we don't deal with this burnout and potential job loss and obs obsolescence and people become irrelevant, you know, are they moving toward drug and alcohol abuse and depression and possible suicide? Is that kind of the outcomes that you're seeing either now or in the future? Yeah. So we know that when you uh, lose a job, your job, your your levels of mortality skyrocket, I think by something like 50% following year. Um, and, you know, and the, and the picture overall is job, major job transition, especially when you didn't choose it, is incredibly psychologically and and physically challenging to us, takes a toll on our mental and physical health. We do, we do see people cope in, in unhealthy ways with this. I think um, I would separate that as a, uh, a vector of coping versus that it, is it, is alcohol abuse more likely to be caused by job loss versus let's say major industry disruption or a, a merger at Aquas, other forms of stress you might be looking at it. I don't think we know that per se, but we know that there are unhealthy ways of coping and there are healthy and positive ways of coping. And for some reason, we have not taught our kids how to do this in schools in the way that makes sense to me that we should be doing. So here we are as adults, it's not too late. And there's so much important science we can benefit from to help us get to a better outcome. I'm a big fan of Steven Pinker and one of his books, Enlightenment Now, really shaped, has shaped the last, whatever, five or, or more years of my life. And there was a, a line in your book, and I'm going to read it, and then I have a question for it, but it, it aligns with kind of Steven Pinker's thinking. Technology innovation has made life move faster and last longer. It has created vast wealth, but it has not made us thrive. And that's what's so interesting to me is, and Pinker would argue that life has gotten better on so many measurable things, life extension, workplace safety, car crashes, infant mortality, et cetera, et cetera. 
But why have we improved so many aspects of life yet failed to become happier? One of the reasons is that the brain is incredibly complex. So it comes down to how our brain works, and it is probably the least well-understood organ in the body. You know, we've extended life based on a really deep, impressive level of understanding of, of our physical body and our and the, the systems that break down. I think there's there's whole new frontiers opening up about improving the physical quality of our, our life, right? As we learn more about what degeneration looks like in tissue, but we live longer. I think we're, we're even making great progress on how to live more comfortably. But the psychological side all comes down to how well we understand any of this in the brain. And it's still this incredibly mysterious frontier of knowledge to me. It, you know, it's the knowledge of knowledge itself. How exciting is that? And that is why, I, you know, I, I love being in this space. It's also very frustrating. And I think it's very frustrating to everyone who cares so much about the space that we don't understand it better and we don't have more. Another piece of it, though, which I'd be remiss not to mention is that for at least the last hundred years, let's say, the agenda of psychological science has largely been about psychopathology. And this worked really well. In, in other areas of medicine where you study disease and it teaches you about health. You study disease, you cure the disease, you extend life. It hasn't worked well in psychiatry. We still cannot cure a single psychiatric disease. We can treat symptoms and we can alleviate symptoms and we can help people get into remission, but we can't cure any of it and it hasn't improved the overall levels of well-being. So what Marty Seligman did and his co-founders of positive psychology was to say, this is, this is broken. It's not working. We haven't moved the needle. We should be focusing on psychological health itself, which we use the word well-being to talk about health and building psychological health. And so we have at least now 30, coming up on 35 years of science around that. I think we've made a ton of progress in that time, particularly given that this is all mainly happening in academia. There aren't pharmaceutical companies working on psychological well-being, which is where a lot of the science happens, right? And the funding exists. So it's outside of that. And I think there's a lot more to be done, but there's there's there were many decades lost and, you know, many trillions of dollars of funding that were spent before we understood that we couldn't just analogize the medical approach to the psychological. Why do you think it was ignored? Is it because there's not repeated revenue sources through like a pill or something like that? Like if you teach somebody the skills to manage their own well-being, it's it's not a you know, recurring revenue source or am I being too cynical there? Yeah, no, no, I don't think you're being too cynical. I mean, I think that there's massive systems in place that that um like really all of healthcare is is sick care. It's not really healthcare. It's about treating sickness. And so through that lens, you know, you're going to employ therapists to treat clinical conditions because that's what there's coverage for and there's a, there's a system around it. And then at the same time, we haven't invested in the science to create the, I, I think we still need more and more of a robust business case so that there's more investment that goes into it with the belief in, in a clear return. I think that the science is there and we just haven't reached the paradigm shift as a society to believe that. 
but it wasn't always there. And some of it's quite new. One of the components of your model is resilience. And, you know, you, you say that psychological resilience can be taught. So how can each of us cultivate that? Resilience, there's a, you know, a million different definitions out there. We think of it as an outcome. So if 100 people go through a challenging situation where they have a, a negative, a neutral, or a positive outcome as a result of that challenge, and highly resilient people actually grow stronger because of the challenge. People who are less resilient can face harm, things like PTSD or even, you know, worst case, like suicide as a result of the trauma. And then everyone in the middle is some degree of kind of a neutral response where they quote unquote bounce back, but aren't, aren't harmed or, or don't gain from it. So we looked at all of the variables that determine who sees a uh, resilient outcome and who doesn't. And we also looked at what are the skills that can be gained that influence an increase in resilience. And of about 150 constructs that we looked at, there were five that emerged as the most important drivers of resilient outcomes. And I'll name them, but the, the idea is that across those five, we have strengths, we have areas of opportunity. If we want to get the most bang for the time invested, invest in building the ones where you have more room to grow, invest in the areas that you're weaker, and know your areas of strength so that when you're in a foxhole, you can lean on those. You know, you can really pull those out to your advantage. So the five are first is emotional regulation, our ability to not be overwhelmed by negative emotion in particular, to learn from it, but to respond rather than react. The second is cognitive agility, which is our ability to go back and forth between kind of surveying the landscape and then picking an approach, and switching back and forth between um, the forest level and the tree level uh, work is, is what that's about. Optimism which is the tendency to uh, provide a positive explanation or foresee a positive outcome. It's realistic, um, it's, it's not fantasy, uh, but it keeps us motivated, whereas pessimism really demotivates us and is a precursor of depression. Self-efficacy is the force that's our kind of like self-confidence. It's our belief that we can accomplish what we set our mind to. And if we're in a difficult spot, if we don't believe in that, we won't try. And the last is self-compassion. We can be much harder on ourselves than we are on other people. When the same exact thing is experienced by someone else versus us, we know how to take care of them. We know how to show up for them, how to provide the kind of support that will comfort them, how to help them keep it in perspective. Whereas when it's us, who's going through that challenge, we can be much harsher. We can lose perspective and feel like much more of a failure than we need to or than is helpful to. So being able to extend that playbook to ourselves is, is self-compassion. And, and across those five, there, there are other drivers, but those are the most important. They account for um, the most uh, significant differences in, in the resilient outcomes that we see. It seems like optimism is something that is a, a set point, that we're born optimistic or we're born pessimistic. Is that accurate? Or how do we improve our outlook or optimism? Both are true. There are people who are more naturally optimistic or pessimistic, but we can absolutely, everyone can become uh, more optimistic. 
you know, for, for some people, the deep roots of pessimism have to do with belief systems, have to do with ideas about um, paranoia keeps me safe, you know, or is part of my success. And so there can be some very deep work that has to happen before people are open to the idea of optimism. But the science is, is I mean, it's it definitive. It's authoritative at this point. Optimists live longer. They have more robust immune systems. They're much more successful at work. Marty, my co-author, published last year a study of almost a million employees of the Department of Defense. And people with higher levels of optimism got four times as many performance awards as those with lower levels. It's it's just, it's one of the, the secrets of success. I think people also don't always know what optimism looks like. There's the the Stockdale paradox from sort of the, the military literature of like, you, you have to be able to see with open eyes the challenge before you, but still feel hopeful about what's ahead. And to be able to lead through that is is really important for leaders in today's workplace. I can't put my fingers on it, but one of the things that I remember from the book is that there was the ability to identify who may have difficulty rebounding or being resilient through a wartime situation prior to somebody going with with high level of accuracy. Can you talk about that? And I'm probably not describing it correctly, but can you talk about your ability to predict somebody's resilience? So things like optimism, high levels of positive emotion, low levels, levels of negative emotion, high levels of any of these drivers we just talked about. Emotional regulation in some ways encapsulates the positive and negative emotion. But the flip side is what would lead to low levels of resilience. And the strongest predictor of that is catastrophic thinking. So catastrophization is where you're in the midst of uncertainty and you immediately identify the worst case scenario and you lock into it as what you think will actually happen. And in, you know, in some scenarios, we all do it. In other scenarios, only a talented few manage to, to figure that out. But you can get really fixated on that reality and start operating as if that is what's happening and reorganizing your whole life around an outcome that's ultimately not very likely. And it's really maladaptive to focus on that worst case scenario at the expense of other possibilities so in, in the military, one of the things that Marty developed with this resilience training is how do you teach people to not catastrophize? And we have adapted that for sort of that high-functioning adult in particular in the workplace, but using it outside the workplace in this exercise called Keeping It in Perspective that's in the book. Another component to help us thrive at work is to create meaning can you talk about some of the ways that leaders can help their people understanding the meaning of their work and why they matter? Yes. So if it's all right, I'll just say a word or two about the difference between meaning and mattering. Um, I think that's a really important because I got tripped up over that. And by the time that I finished your explanation, I was like, oh, yeah, there is there is a an important distinction here. Yeah, it's a very practical distinction. So we were researching meaningful work, purposeful work for many years before we arrived at this. And, and we have all kinds of really, I think, useful and interesting findings on the different drivers of meaningful work, the variation and how we think about, you know, what, what makes us feel a sense of purpose at work. 
the the reality is that as a research construct, meaning is very flabby to use a Marty word. So it can mean in its most precise psychological operationalization by uh, Michael Steger, psychological researcher. It can mean comprehension, like meaning a a broader sense of where you fit in the universe. It can mean significance, a sense of how important you are to the universe, and it can have a sense of purpose. And so all three of those can rightfully be described as meaning, but they're very different. And it becomes challenging to answer the question, is it meaningful? Is it meaningful that we're having this conversation? Is it meaningful that I cooked dinner for my family last night? We, we use it to just mean such a wide variety of things. In the workplace in particular, a lot of managers and a good number of very senior leaders don't really feel comfortable talking about this idea of meaningful work in the way that we need them to for this to be effective. So meaning can carry a spiritual connotation. It can feel very personal and leaders at work don't necessarily feel comfortable going into that with their employees without, without, you know, having any kind of normative judgment about that. That's just descriptively what we're seeing out there. And it, it's made it hard to work on meaningful work. Mattering is almost, as they say, mattering is the minimum. It's the idea that it, it matters whether or not I get up and do my work because there's a point to doing that work for other people in the office, for the customers, for the success of the business. If we don't feel that our labors matter, we're just not going to do them. And in fact, one of the hallmarks of depression is feeling that you don't matter and, and your work doesn't matter. Everyone can agree that a manager should be able to explain to their employees why their work matters. And that is a core part of being a leader. It's also something that we have to do more and more of because as we change from one tack to another, as we pivot from one strategy to another, and we need to have people change what they're spending their time on, we need to explain over and over why this new thing matters, even though you had to stop this old thing that I told you mattered. Um, So it becomes a core part of of being a manager today is to be able to narrate mattering. Um, you know, the, the, the white water, as we call it, this sort of constant river of tomorrow that we're, we're navigating all the time is a place where mattering is in crisis. Every time we have to put aside one set of efforts and move on to another. And that language seems to be very universally accepted. People are, are latching onto it and managers who are up for the very difficult task of leading in this environment are willing to accept that that is a big part of what they need to do. And they're interested in learning how to do that. I want to move on to social support. And the Surgeon General has called loneliness an epidemic in the U.S. The data support it. (laughs) But people are time poor. There's greater distances between coworkers at work and family members even. And we've lost a degree of curiosity about others, I, I feel anyway. And I think it's uh, especially true when it's con- concerning people who are different than us. And I wonder how we can create and sustain the relationships that help us become more resilient and relevant in the workplace. We know that these relationships matter. They sustain us. We know that they're also important for outcomes on things like innovation, because innovation is so collaborative today. And they're critical for customer support. So 
the more we automate customer support, the more our customers expect from an actual human that they talk to. And yet, for all the reasons you, you listed, right, this sense of geographic isolation, the vast differences that, that divide us as we come together with people in you know, a totally different culture, and this sense that there's, we don't have enough time to do any of it, it's harder than ever to connect and to build those relationships. So here's a place where we, we really can use science to our advantage and also where I feel like there's a whole frontier of science that, that we will yet uncover to help us with this as we understand more and more about how we build trust with one another, what are the things that get in the way. And so you could think of it as like biohacking trust or biohacking relationships. I think it's a little bit of a cynical way to think of it. I think it's more like, how can we use what we know about how we connect with one another to overcome the barriers that we, that we face today? One example, there's some great research from folks who study time famine. So time famine is this idea that we don't have enough time. We're always in a hurry. There's never enough hours in the day. The converse is time abundant, which is more of a feeling of I have the time I need to do what I need to do. And I don't feel the clock ticking every second of every day. And so people have looked at how do you get people to shift from one of those to the other? When we're in time famine, it's a barrier to social connection. So feeling that we don't have enough time, as, as you said, it leads to antisocial behaviors. It leads us to help others less and to spend less time connecting. So it's in our interest to try to shift to a mindset of time abundant. Um, and one of the quote unquote hacks for doing that, which has just been discovered experimentally by looking at lots of different ways, is actually to do kind things for others in particular to give maybe 30 minutes of your day to someone else, whether it's a colleague or someone in need, and really to do it for the purpose of helping that person, not in a self-serving way. And when we do that, we shift really into this other brain network. In a way, it's it's from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic. And, and now not only have we engaged in activity that does make us more connected, we're in a mindset where we're more open to spending time with people and connecting with people. So some of this is really rewriting the or writing the operating manual for our, for our own brain so we can get into the right mode of being and thinking to accomplish those tasks. And that mode of thinking is often not the one we're in when we're working. Can you define the word prospection? Prospection is our ability to imagine and plan for the future. How can we develop our prospection capabilities? So prospection is one of these uniquely human capabilities, and it's evidenced in all, all kinds of early archaeological evidence, even just the way that we learn to make a dagger. You have to get different materials. You've got to connect them in a different way. There's this plan, and then this thing takes shape. So it's, it's very native to our species, and it's a big part of how we've outcompeted other species on this planet. Um, we, the science of prospection is still young, but we know some interesting and fundamental things. So for example, we believe that it occurs in two phases. The first phase is fast and divergent, and the second phase is slower and it's more deliberative. So if I were to ask you, where would you hope to be in your career in 10 years? You might start with a, a wide ranging array and, and a sense of excitement and hope, and then Within a few seconds or minutes, you might get more into an evaluative state 
of, well, that's not realistic because of X, and maybe that's more realistic, but I'd have to overcome this barrier. In those two phases, what our colleague Roy Baumeister calls dream, dream big and get real, there are things that can go wrong in each one of those. And, and those are, are, in some ways, population level biases, and in some ways, they're individual challenges that we have to overcome. So, for example, there are lots of people who don't dream big enough. They shut down that optimistic, excited, divergent thinking too quickly. They get too quickly into this more pessimistic evaluation. So the goal there is to help people stay in the phase one, the dream big, longer, to learn to enjoy it more, to overcome their discomfort there, and to make sure they're thinking divergently enough to begin with. And then for other people, the challenge is in, in the get real phase where they're you know evaluating in a way that might not be realistic. They might be overly discounting some of the promising but highly divergent ideas. So you can start to dial in the approach of improvement and, and personalized it based on where an individual's strengths are within that. Creativity and novel problem solving are superpowers at work. But a lot of people don't feel like they're creative. Do you have any advice for how leaders can unlock the creativity within members of their team? Yeah. So the the first thing to know is we really are all creative. It's true that there are some people who have this like all overt, highly manifest skill for thinking wildly and divergently. And we think of those as the creative people, but we are all very, very creative beings. And you want to treat everyone on your team that way. And you want to use that language. Because part of what you're doing is building up their creative self-efficacy, which is their creative self-belief. And that correlates highly with the quality of their creative output. So people who have more of a higher self-belief in their own creativity have higher quality creative output. And as a manager, you can impact that tremendously by noticing the ways, including very small ways that people are creative whether it's an idea they have in a brainstorm or a solution for a problem that they intuited, that you notice and you, you hadn't thought of, noticing it, recognizing it, using words like creative or innovative to label it helps build their creative self-efficacy and helps create a culture where everyone feels like they can contribute a new idea. I'm going to call back a couple of episodes from the season that you're involved in, season 11 of the podcast. We've had Dr. Amy Edmondson on the show and Eduardo Bersino, and both of them talked about failing forward, failing fast, psychological safety. These are really, really critical and important topics to enhance creativity if you want people to take risks so you know people can learn more there. The last chapter of your book is called Future-Proofing the Workforce. How do we do that? And and you can describe it in such a way that teases the book, but doesn't give them, <laughs> they give them the whole thing. So the teaser is that the ways we think about instilling skills in the workforce today come from the industrial revolution, both the, the ways we think about it and the, even the structures that are in our organizations today. Those are based on outmoded science. Actually, the science they're based on wasn't even the best science of the day. It was just the loudest in a way. Um, and it's not serving us well today. It's, it's not serving us in representing the nature of the science of thriving, what it takes, what needs to be done. Um, and so it's not working very well. 
And the, the last chapter is charting what it would take to restructure, to do this more effectively, and to get the right level of visibility and transparency on these issues for everyone, from the frontline employee to shareholders. You're a mother to multiple children. So that, in my mind, defines you as an optimist. What fills you with optimism about the future? I, I absolutely see um, children as a, as a source of, of optimism. I think we're getting better at embedding these principles for large populations. And I see more people talking about bringing them into the schools. I think the point at which we're taking these seriously in K-12 we will be building a different future for ourselves and we will finally be in a position to move the needle on that paradox we started with, improving the quality of our lived experience. We've talked a lot about Tomorrow Mind, your book that you wrote with Marty Seligman, but we haven't talked about BetterUp. So what is BetterUp doing to help develop Tomorrow Minds? We have a, a leadership development platform that works at every level of the organization. We also work with universities. And we're helping people build well-being as individuals, and we're helping them build a tomorrow mind as leaders for the broader organization through prospection, innovation, social connection, etc. Mainly we do it through coaching, both one-on-one -on -one coaching and group coaching, but we also have some digital tools available. We believe everything should be measured so everyone who's doing it knows how they're growing, and so people paying for it know where their investments are going. And, 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 you know, to, to be able to reach everyone in their language in the right way with the development need that they have is, is our hope and our aspiration. <laughs> Dr. Rosen Kellerman, phenomenal job on the book. I, I, as I said, it's just a wonderful companion to what we've been talking about for five years on 12 Geniuses. Thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses, and thanks to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. This is the final episode of Season 11 of 12 Geniuses. We'll return with new episodes in early 2024. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.